Chapter 6 Behind Enemy Lines Beware of white ladies in chemise dresses and pretty sandals that show their toes. Beware of these ladies when spring is here. They have strange habits of infesting our townships with seeds of geraniums, pansies, poppies, carnations. They plant their seeds in our eroded slums, cultivating charity in our eroded hearts, making our slums look like floral utopias. Beware. Beware of seeds and plants. They take up your oxygen and they take up your time and let you wait for blossoms and let you pray for rain and you forget about equality and blooming liberation. Chris van Beek At five o'clock in the early evening of the 25th of September 1978, the chairman of the Anglo-Transvaal Mines Consolidated Anglo-Vaal Mining House, Clive Menel, took the chair at the regular monthly meeting of the Transvaal Regional Board of the Urban Foundation. The foundation was funded by the biggest names in South African business, including the giant Anglo-American corporation controlled by mining magnate Harry Oppenheimer. Around the table in the boardroom on the ninth floor of the NBS building on Rissick Street sat many of Johannesburg's most powerful business leaders, together with the executive director of the UF, former judge Jan Stein. Menel's first task was a pleasant one, to welcome a new member of the board, Cyril Ramaphosa. How did this 25-year-old black man from Soweto find himself in the company of this group of powerful businessmen? And what exactly was the significance of his presence? In order to answer these questions, it's necessary to trace the response of the Soweto community and the world of white business to the events of June 1976. The 1976 uprising of the children and youth was as much of a shock to the parents of Soweto as it was to the authorities. In the rebellion's immediate aftermath, community leaders gathered together on one account at the behest of Percy Corbosa, editor of The World, on another account at the suggestion of Dennis Beckett and Agri Cluster. Around 200 Sowetans, the self-selected elite of Soweto society, turned up at the meeting held at the offices of The World. Along with dozens of professionals and small business people, teachers, nurses and shopkeepers, there were a few younger people such as Cyril, Frank Shikani, and student leader Eddie Siala. Among the more prominent speakers were Dr. Ntato Motlana, a pillar of the local community who would play a major role later on in Cyril's life, and Winnie Mandela, whose presence was at that stage always welcome. Wherever Winnie went, journalists were likely to follow, and the security police would be deterred from harassment and arbitrary arrest. The prevailing view at the meeting was very much at variance with Ramaphosa's own assessment. For Cyril, the uprising was the beginning of the revolution, and while we were at university, we had always thought the real revolution was coming, where there would be mayhem and total destruction. At a political level, we thought that this was it, and we needed to exploit it and make maximum use of it. The Soweto establishment, which dominated the meeting, understood the uprising in narrower and less historical terms. As ANC veteran and community activist Ellen Kozwayo explained, the key to 1976 for them was that the youth attacked and closed down the urban Bantu council. They were trying to destroy an illegitimate local government system. Kozwayo epitomized the conservative approach to the struggle against apartheid within Soweto, a 62-year-old political veteran, she was the child of a relatively privileged family who had been dispossessed of their 1,500-acre Free State farm in her youth. She had been educated in private colleges in Durban and at the prestigious Lovedale Teacher Training College in the Eastern Cape. Introduced to ANC politics as early as the 1936 Bloemfontein Conference, she had gone on in 1944 to be part of the radical cohort of the Youth League that included Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu and Oliver Tambo. Initially a teacher, Kuzwaya was disgusted by the Bantu education legislation and retrained as a social worker. She then became a prominent member of the Soweto community, running classic ameliorative projects and self-help programs around literacy and the rights of women. 
Under the guidance of senior figures like Cusuayo and Motlana, the meeting determined that a detailed study of the Soweto local authority was required to better understand its funding and functioning. A committee of ten was mandated to complete the study within six months. The committee included newspaper editor Corbosa, shopkeeper Vela Krai, student activist Eddie Siala, and teacher Tom Mantata, as well as prominent local notables such as Motlana and Kuzwayo. Curiously, some people who were not present believe that Cyril was one of the members of the committee, whereas this is contradicted by, among others, Ntato Motlana, who was its leading figure. The probable reason for this confusion is that the label Committee of Ten in later years became shorthand for whoever happened to be in the current set of prominent Soweto leaders, and Cyril was to become very prominent in the 1980s. The Committee of Ten was not as conservative as it is sometimes made out to be. Its members were determined to overthrow the widely despised system of Soweto local government and to replace it with a broadly democratic leadership, which they would have conceived as themselves. The report the committee produced ended with demands for a new community-based board of control over the council, the power to levy taxes, oversight over the police forces, and the right to hold local elections. These proposals were vehemently rejected by the Minister of Justice. When the committee tried to bring them to the attention of the Soweto community, their meetings were banned. On the 19th of October 1977, almost all the members of the committee were detained by the security police as part of a renewed assault on black political organisations. Kuzwayo was held for five months in the fort, the grim prison that nestles beside the new constitutional court building in Bramfontein. Percy Cobosa was arrested on the same day and his newspaper, The World, was banned. For its part, the white business community was also concerned by the events of June 1976. Apartheid was charting an unpredictable course that was running increasingly counter to the interests of business. Some companies, to be sure, continued to derive great benefit from apartheid, in particular from the cheap labour that it allowed them to exploit. The economy was now a complex creature, however. Just as manufacturing had outstripped mining in the 1940s, South Africa was now becoming increasingly centred around new technologies and a burgeoning service sector. Even within the manufacturing sector, the demand for a permanent urbanised workforce was strong and many producers bewailed the lack of a black middle class to bolster domestic demand. After 1976, business now feared that apartheid could end in ruin and it wanted action to cement black political stability. A memorandum from the Transvaal Chamber of Industries to the Prime Minister, five weeks after the uprisings began, captured this new sense of urgency. The thought most basic to our submission is the need to ensure a stable, contented, urbanised black community in our metropolitan areas. The emergence of a middle class with Western-type materialistic needs and ambitions has already occurred in these areas. The mature, family-oriented, urban black already places the stability of his household uppermost and is more interested in his pay packet than in politics. Our prime point of departure should be that this middle class is not weakened by frustration and indignity. Only by having this most respectable section of the urban black on our side can the whites of South Africa be assured of containing on a long-term basis the irresponsible economic and political ambitions of those blacks who are influenced against their own interests from within and without our borders. Through an unexpected sense of coincidences, the young couple, the stunningly beautiful Hope and the charismatic Cyril, had meantime been propelled into the orbit of one of South Africa's most prominent business families. Cyril had been profoundly depressed after his first detention and subsequent exclusion from university. One of the few positive aspects of the experience had been the unexpected discovery that people outside South Africa were protesting against the arbitrary detention imposed by the regime. A British woman, called Sarah Woodhouse, living in the English Midlands, 
had energetically campaigned through the organization Amnesty International for Cyril's release. Along with dozens of other Amnesty activists, she had sent protest letters to Pretoria and collected money to help Cyril's family with legal expenses. She was keen to meet with the Ramaphosas and to do everything she could to make Cyril's life after detention more tolerable. Sarah's husband, Jim Woodhouse, was the headmaster of Rugby School, one of England's most famous private boarding schools, at which, according to the legend, the game of rugby was invented. He was acquainted with the powerful South African mining magnate Clive Menel, who was an old boy of rugby, and whose son Rick had just finished his own studies there as a boarder. Menel's wife, Irene, was a prominent politician in the Progressive Party, a patron of good causes, an assiduous networker, and a performer of virtuous liberal deeds. When the Woodhouses came to meet the Ramaphosa family in 1975, soon after Cyril's release, they introduced the Menels to Hope and Cyril, and in effect asked them if they could care for the two of them, a request that did not simply come out of the blue, but rather reflected Clive and Irene's own project of collecting bright people. Cyril and Hope were striking figures at that time, in their intelligence and beauty, as much as in the injustices they had endured, and they must have represented an appealing addition to the Menel's collection. These wealthy patrons were to open many doors in the years to follow, providing advice, resources, and access to a powerful circle of acquaintances. When Hope and Cyril were finally married three years later, Irene was there to celebrate, walking in a long human snake along the streets of Chiawelo. Ramaphosa also began to spend time with the couple's son, Rick, who was exactly Cyril's age and was finishing his studies in England. Rick was cosmopolitan and felt stifled in South African society. He was educated at rugby and then at Trinity College, Cambridge, and he would later leave South Africa for Stanford University and a period of work in New York. He had imbibed the cautious politics of 1970s English liberalism and he wanted to befriend South Africans from outside the establishment. The segregation of public places in Johannesburg meant that the two had few places where they could meet. Rick still remembers drinking coffee with Cyril in the basement of the Central Methodist Church in Johannesburg, one of the very few cross-racial venues available at that time. In what must have been a revelation for both men at that time, the two were to become friends. Cyril's acquaintance with the Menels brought him into giddy social and political circles. Irene Menel was a very grand lady indeed, and like her friend Helen Sussman, she has since 1990 effortlessly gravitated from the old establishment into the new. Sorry to be a little late, I've just come from lunch with Nelson Mandela and Helen Sussman. In the mid-1970s, however, she was an activist and sometime chair of the Johannesburg Progressive Party, whose leader and sole MP, Helen Sussman, was her very close friend. The source of the family's great wealth was Anglovale, a mining house founded in 1933 by Slip Menel and Bob Hersov. The two families later maintained their controlling stake in the business, sons Clive Menel and Basil Hersov taking executive control in the 1960s, and Rick Menel becoming chief executive in 1992. Basil Hersov was a significant power broker in his own right, working on the margins between money and politics. He was to become chairman of Barclays Bank South Africa, and then First National Bank, of which we will hear more about later, and was also to become a member of P.W. Boerter's Defence Council. Hersov, like the Menels, was later to move seamlessly between the old establishment and the new, but controversially so because of his involvement with the ANC's first Minister of Defence, Joe Modise, in the British company BAE's component of the strategic arms procurement process. The Menels divided their time between their mansion in the mining magnet belt of Parktown and a beautiful and historic family farm that nestles in the Constantia Valley, a country farm almost impossibly close to Cape Town. In South African terms, this family is old money. To borrow Alan Clark's put-down of British Aravista politician Michael Heseltine, they do not have to buy their own furniture. 
The couple recognized that they were a powerful establishment family with a high level of immunity from harassment by the security police. On Irene's account, they were determined to use the space and freedom they possessed to advance a project of bridge-building between South Africa's divided races. On the more jaded reading of the veteran politician and one-time Progressive Party leader Friedrich von Selslubert, Irene did not like to be left behind in politics, and she was keen to help shape the emerging black elite. Cynics might indeed dismiss the Menel's politics as self-indulgent. Clive was an officiado of jazz, and he would hold elaborate jazz evenings in their home on 3rd Avenue Parktown. The Menel's white acquaintances included more or less every liberal of significance in Johannesburg of the time. They celebrated the almost unprecedented opportunity they provided for black to mix with white, and their social whirl was dominated by lively friends from the performing arts world. Yet their circle of acquaintance also spanned the business elites of Johannesburg, and they made efforts to engage corporate leaders with the small number of black South Africans they assiduously cultivated. Visitors at their home included Mangosutu Butelezi, darling of white business in the 1970s because of his embrace of market capitalism, Dr. Ntato Mutlana, Soweto's most prominent ANC activist turned businessman, and Anglican churchman Desmond Tutu, arch-moralist of the anti-apartheid forces. In later years, they would cultivate Africans whose self-conception was somewhat more radical. Irene remembers, I once had Barney Pachana out there on the stoop, and he was telling me that what we are doing is just a band-aid. She also recollects Sidney Mfomadi sitting on her couch. Right where I'm sitting now, he was telling me that all of the role models in the Alexandra of his youth were gangsters. The Menel's social planning was not always impeccable. At one dinner party, they contrived to invite Ntato Mutlana and Mutlana's ex-wife, who were not on good terms, to sit at the same table. The error was compounded by the presence of Mangosutu Butelezi, with whom Mutlana had just engaged in a vituperative series of public exchanges in the press. Fortunately, Butelezi and Mutlana embraced and decided to put the past behind them. Butelezi was already a controversial presence for other black South Africans because of his equivocal treatment of the issue of Bantustan autonomy. Irene recollects Desmond Tutu's son on another occasion when Butelezi was present, remarking, no doubt with subtle irony, What's that nigger doing here? Loud enough for the Inkata leader to hear. Butelezi remained impassive. Along with the jazz evenings and social functions, each of the Menels hosted a more serious forum. For Clive, it was the Synthesis, a discussion group that had been running since the 1960s. Before Menel took the helm, it was chaired by Frederick von Selslubert, who believed it should be a small and focused forum for intense debate. Menel's understanding of what Synthesis should be was, however, quite different and his first decision was to vastly increase the scale of the undertaking, quite ruining the forum in the process in the view of Slubbert. Synthesis met on Saturday mornings. It was hosted by Clive at his Parktown house, or sometimes on the family farm in Constantia. If circumstances demanded, for example, if they wished to meet in Durban, where the Menels had neglected to buy a property, the event was hosted by friends. Each session involved perhaps 30 people, selected by Menel, and they would discuss a theme relevant to the problems of the day. Most of those attending regularly would be whites from the Menel's business and social circles, for example, powerful Afrikaners and English-speaking gentlemen such as Rudolf Hoes, Anton Rupert and Derek Keyes, the last of whom was later to bridge differences between ANC and business over economic policy and become finance minister in the Government of National Unity after 1994. Also prominent were members of what Irene deliciously calls the do-gooder wing of the Anglo-American Corporation, the likes of Zach de Beer and Bobby Godsell. Clive Menel was also sure to invite Anglo's key strategists, such as Gavin Reilly and Julian Ogilvy-Thompson, 
who were to become Anglo-chairmen in their turn in the 1980s. Other white invitees included assorted liberal journalists and social policy entrepreneurs, for example Anne Bernstein, Dennis Beckett, Raymond Lowe and Sean Johnson, the sort of people who certainly had to buy their own furniture. Representatives of the liberal Afrikaner intellectual elite were also regular attendees. Fonsel Slavat himself, the brilliantly counter-suggestible Stellenbosch political theorist André Dutoy, and Dutoy's less gifted colleague Willy Esterhazer, who was to nevertheless play a significant role in the thawing of relations between Afrikaner intellectuals and the exile ANC in years to come. Representatives of Afrikaner state power were thinner on the ground, not enjoying the company of men who viewed themselves, with some self-satisfaction, as questioning the established order to which they belonged. André Dutoy, who attended synthesis meetings in Cape Town and Johannesburg across the late 1970s and 1980s, remembers one occasion in September 1985 when General Johan Kutsir, the head of the South African police, was invited to present an account at the Menos Parktown home of the township violence that was sweeping the country. Almost the entire Anglo contingent was present, including Gavin Reilly, who'd recently taken over as chairman from the aging Harry Oppenheimer. Kutsia's talk was wooden and largely uninformative, not, in Dutoy's view, atypical for a synthesis presentation, and the general left rather abruptly after the lunch break, claiming that an urgent mission called him away. It transpired that the mission to which he referred was a Curry Cup rugby match between Northern Transvaal and Western Cape. Equally tellingly, the very next day, Gavin Relly was to fly to Lusaka for a highly controversial meeting with the ANC leadership. Rather than providing a venue in which breathtaking initiatives might stir passionate debate and profound reflection, synthesis could be a setting in which significant events were brushed under the carpet despite, or perhaps because of, the presence of the key role players. Much of the force that synthesis meetings did possess came from the presence at every session of a small number of black South Africans. The creation of an atmosphere in which interaction at an intellectual and social level between black and white might be possible was still extremely unusual. In the Cape, regulars included Franklin and Julian Son. In Johannesburg, alongside Botelezi, Synthesis attracted members of the Soweto community leadership who were active in the Committee of Ten, for example, Ellen Kuzwayo and Ntato Motlana, and figures such as Fikili Bam, the lawyer who had known Mandela and Tambo in the 1950s, had spent ten years on Robben Island, and along with Madiba and Mac Maharaj, had offered prisoners legal advice on the island when being called before the Prison Disciplinary Committee. Ramaphosa was a belated and occasional addition to this company, and some regulars cannot even recall whether or not he was ever in attendance. Although the Menels would no doubt have liked him to play a prominent part, Ramaphosa was not well disposed towards talking shops of this kind. His access to the liberal elite, however, gave him a unique insight for a black man of his age into the thought patterns of his soon-to-be adversaries in business and government. The Menels played a major role in the creation and operation of the Urban Foundation, a body that was to have an important influence on the lives of Cyril and Hope. The events of 1976 created space for the philosophy of constructive engagement that the Menels embraced, and Irene was fired up by the uprising to mobilize resources, existing resources, that were simply going to waste and use them to address practical problems. Her inspiration was the New Detroit project from the late 1960s Michigan, illustrating not only the imaginative hold of American racial politics for her class, but also the prevailing misconception that systematic majority exploitation and oppression was not the issue. In July 1976, Clive and Irene floated their ideas to the Institute of Racial Relations director Freddie van Veek and Financial Mail editor George Palmer, Together they hatched a plan. Anglo's do-gooders had a conference on urban housing planned for later that year, and Irene and Clive decided to hijack it. 
Through Harry Oppenheimer's personal assistant, Nick Dermont, they sold the idea to Zach de Beer, the political strategist in the Oppenheimer inner circle, and then to the old man himself. Harry Frederick Oppenheimer was the most famous businessman of his day and by far the richest man in Africa. Only marginally in his shadow was Anton Rupert, the self-made giant of Afrikaner business. Oppenheimer and Rupert already partly embraced the Menel's idea that high levels of poverty and limited social provision in peri-urban townships were ameliorative causes of social unrest. They decided together to convene a businessmen's conference on the quality of life of urban communities in place of the scheduled urban housing conference in Johannesburg's Carlton Hotel on the 29th and 30th of November 1976. More than 200 prominent business people attended, representing almost every sector of the economy. Alongside figures like Gavin Reilly and Raymond Ackerman, there were also a number of black invitees, members of the Committee of Ten, such as Ellen Kuzwayo, familiar faces from the Menel Circle, such as Franklin Son, and also two Lutheran churchmen, one of whom was Chenuwani Farisani, Cyril's mentor from Mpapuli High School. He had no fear of being branded a collaborator, he recalls, because his credibility was simply too great. The conference was not an exciting affair. As is conventional at such events, the final resolutions were already drafted by the opening of the conference. The set speeches, however, offer a revealing window on the white elite's limited understanding of the challenges it faced. One participant observed that Soweto has got a beautiful stretch that runs from New Canada right up to the end of Cliptown. Alluding to the famous lake in the elegant white suburb of Park View, he suggested the Soweto stretch could become the second zoo lake of South Africa. The highlight of the event, however, was a breathtaking closing speech by Anton Rupert. The sage businessman adopted an especially wide historical perspective of the Soweto uprising. He warned of an alarming deterioration in the overall trajectory of Western civilization before lamenting the corrupting force of money in a West seduced by wealth. He then peered sagaciously into the future, condemning burying one's head in the sand, and castigated those who hoped to hide from gathering storm clouds that were both around the corner and over the horizon. This, he sternly warned, is how Knossos, the rich and civilized capital of ancient Crete, fell in a night to the invading Mycenaeans. With a degree of insensitivity to the black members of the audience, he continued, This is how Rome fell to the barbarians. Whites must refuse to be cowed by fear, he cautioned. The fear of survival as a separate entity, the fear of being overrun by numbers, the fear of possible tyranny by an unenlightened majority resulting in one man, one vote once. Turning to the practical implications of his analysis, Rupert observed that we cannot survive unless we have a free market economy, a stable black middle class with the necessary security of tenure, personal security and a feeling of hope for betterment in the heart of all our peoples. He then spelt out the seven dimensions of the practical challenge, job creation, training, a living wage, greater commercial opportunities, extended home ownership, improved housing, and the provision of sporting and other amenities. To establish an urban development foundation to accommodate and coordinate on an ongoing basis the private sector's endeavours at improving the quality of life in the urban black townships to encourage and assist as a catalyst the transformation of South Africa's urban black communities into stable, essentially middle-class societies, subscribing to the values of a free enterprise society and having a vested interest in their own survival. The inspirational ideas were met with acclaim and the Urban Foundation was born. Oppenheimer and Rupert chose as chief executive of the foundation a judge, Jan Stein, from a famous family of Afrikaner leaders. Stein coveted the position, writing a flattering letter to Harry Oppenheimer on the 8th of December, 
that praised the old man for his tactful yet courageous chairmanship of proceedings and making it clear he wanted to work for the foundation in future. Whether Stain was the right man for the task was unclear. Rupert's biographer describes how Stain endured an eye-opening visit to Soweto, discovering to his consternation that there was only one cinema and one sports field, and so inadvertently revealing his unfamiliarity with the lives of most of his fellow South Africans. At the first meeting of the Board of Directors in the Pretoria Room of the Carlton Hotel on the 3rd of February 1977, the triumvirate of Oppenheimer, Rupert and Stain were joined by representatives from a variety of important business sectors including mining, banking and retailing. It was decided that regional boards would be created in the Transvaal, the Western and Eastern Cape and Durban to oversee developmental initiatives. The National Board delegated its powers to an executive board where real power would be exercised. This was to comprise Rupert Oppenheimer Stein and the directors of the regional boards. Clive Menel, a member of the National Board, immediately agreed to become chair of the Transvaal Regional Board, so taking responsibility for operations in Soweto and Greater Johannesburg. He inevitably invited some of his Soweto acquaintances, including members of the Committee of Ten, such as Percy Corbosa and Ellen Kuzwayo, onto his regional board. Menno planned to increase black representation systematically from 7 out of 28 members in 1977 to 13 out of 31 by 1979. Very soon he'd invited Cyril to join them in what Irene Menno describes as a charitable gesture. Ramaphosa was very young, but there was speculation about his potential. Fred Paswana, who was also a member of the Transvaal Regional Board, remembers that Cyril was evidently picked out as a future leader. In another episode of Patronage, meanwhile, Hope was taken on by the region as a staff member. The budget of the region for the year when Cyril joined the board was a little over two million rand, about a quarter of the total national budget of the UF. There were 25 or 30 projects on the go at any one time. These included the provision of local essential services such as schools and creches, the electrification of schools, home improvement projects, housing developments, other construction works and small initiatives to enhance community life. There were inevitable tensions between long-term development and short-term amelioration, but these were debated openly and thoughtfully by Menel's board. They mostly expected communities to initiate, own, and partially finance projects. To take a typical example, in 1978 the board agreed to the provision of a fence for Hikakani School in Chiawelo. The school had been suffering from vandalism and destruction of property. The school committee itself initiated the request for funds, and the board approved a payment of 1,330 rand, of which 890 rand was a grant and 440 rand was an interest-free loan. After joining the regional board in September 1978, Cyril initially attended board meetings regularly on the first Monday of every month. He was an active contributor to discussion, supporting the Foundation's philosophy and critical of the paternalistic approach to development embraced by Afrikaner bureaucrats. On occasion, he sharply interrogated the assumptions of fellow board members about the character of Soweto community life. Despite early capacity problems that made it hard to spend the funds they had raised, the Urban Foundation did have major achievements to its name. It championed a 99-year leasehold for South Africans entitled to live and work in urban areas and allowed them to buy and sell property or to bequeath it in a will. The leasehold remained controversial among black residents why a leasehold rather than freehold, and the rationale for the legislation was intellectually crude. Home ownership, according to Jan Stein, brings about social stability, capital formation among blacks, and an impetus towards the rapid development of a stable black middle class. Continuing pressure by the Urban Foundation led quite rapidly to the introduction of full freehold rights for Africans. In effect, the government's argument that Africans were only temporarily resident in the white cities had been abandoned, and the Urban Foundation could claim much of the credit. 
The developmental initiatives of the foundation started to build intellectual and policy bridges between liberal whites and pragmatic blacks. One regular correspondent of Jan Steyn was Bobby Godsell, who was rapidly making his way up the hierarchy of Anglo's corporate office. A prog, recruited into Anglo by Harry Oppenheimer himself, Harry had a very low opinion of almost all human beings, but he had a lot of time for Bobby. Godsell was now tramping around some of the same practical and intellectual spaces as Cyril, lamenting the failures of the administrative board of Soweto, advancing sensible ideas for the reform of tenure, and identifying government actions that needlessly caused political conflict. Cyril's increasingly erratic board attendance over his second year may, nevertheless, indicate growing disillusion with the activities the National Board was carrying out in the Foundation's name. The concentration of power and information in the National Executive Board often left ordinary regional board members in the dark. Fundraising was driven at National Board level by Jan Steyn, and within five years the Foundation was receiving funds from more than 150 businesses. Anglo-American and De Beers the mining giants associated with Oppenheimer were the biggest donors, but Anton Rupert's Rembrandt Group also contributed handsomely. Mining houses Gencore and Barlow Rand, retailers Pick and Pay and Woolworths, and financial houses Nedbank and Standard Bank were major long-term donors. South African subsidiaries of foreign companies were also key contributors, Ford giving 1 million rand over four years, British Petroleum and Shell donating almost as much, and Unilever and Barclays Bank making smaller but significant payments. Stain soon widened the search for funds, first making regular trips to London and New York, in which the Foundation's achievements and needs could be showcased. In 1979, the Executive Committee decided to establish an outpost of the Foundation in London, the Urban Foundation London Limited, and then a further office in New York. This initiative allowed tax advantages to accrue to donor companies in the UK and was also purportedly designed to allow the Urban Foundation to exert external leverage on Pretoria. The reality was predictably quite different. The London and New York offices were never effective fundraising centres. Indeed, the Urban Foundation continued to be dependent on local donors and particularly on Anglo throughout its existence. In fact, the overseas offices were primarily lobbying instruments, and it was foreign companies and governments, rather than Pretoria, that were their target. The Anglo-funded big business lobby group, the South Africa Foundation, was already campaigning hard to deflect calls for economic sanctions to be imposed on Pretoria. Although it was not an official policy of the Urban Foundation, what they lobbied for was increasingly indistinguishable from the South African Foundation campaign. The London and New York Urban Foundation outposts became instruments in a quiet attempt to discourage forced and voluntary disinvestment in South Africa by international big business. Correspondence with Stain from British business leaders confirms that this was their central preoccupation. While the proponents of economic sanctions believed they could help change hearts and minds in South Africa, business was inevitably opposed on the ground that sanctions would cost jobs, so damaging black rather than white interests. Irene Menel observes that engagement was always rightly a cornerstone policy for dealing with Pretoria. This chimed with Oppenheimer's own belief that engagement with capitalism by its own devices would ultimately unwind the scourge of apartheid. Stain used fundraising trips to visit conservative politicians in the UK who were strident campaigners for constructive engagement and cheerleaders of Mangosuta Butelezi. He overwhelmingly lobbied conservative rather than Labour politicians, even when Labour was in government. In 1978, for example, he met leader of the opposition Margaret Thatcher and Dennis Thatcher's right-wing journalist friend Bill Deeds, as well as a number of far-right conservative members of Parliament. In the 1980s, moreover, long after Ramaphosa's departure, the Urban Foundation surpassed even the South Africa Foundation in promoting sanctions-busting.
1986, it proposed a way for companies to retain control of South African assets, despite a facade of disinvestment. For critics of the Urban Foundation, it was the sanctions issue that ultimately rankled most. It is hard to avoid the conclusion that the Urban Foundation was essentially another appendage of Anglo, rather than an independent foundation. On the 11th of September 1980, Jan Steen wrote to Colonel F.A.J. von Sale, the head of security at Anglo-American. A friend of Steen's, Val McFarlane, was expecting visitors from the UK, a group of senior British police officers. They had expressed an interest in visiting a diamond mine. In his letter, Steen instructed von Sale to arrange a trip to the giant De Beers-owned Oranjemund diamond mine on the Namibian coast on the 12th of November. Very much a peremptory demand in an Anglo chain of command, rather than a polite request from an independent foundation. Before Cyril became disillusioned with the Urban Foundation, it helped him to find a new home for his legal studies, after two years of fitful progress at Dollowitz's chambers on Jeppy Street. In early 1979, he attended a three-day strategy discussion at the Four Ways Hotel. In attendance were Jan Steen, Clive Menel, Rick Menel, other members of the regional board, staff members including Hope, planning and development experts such as Anne Bernstein and Jill Strelitz, and the Urban Foundation's legal advisor Bob Tucker. They considered the implications of a background study of demographic and town planning challenges in Soweto that the Urban Foundation had commissioned and explored potential constructive responses. There were also some genuine moments of human connection. Bob Tucker, for example, was reduced to tears by Margaret Motumi's description of how black people live. Tucker, meanwhile, warmed to Cyril's character and intellect, and Rick Menel may have mentioned Cyril's search for somewhere new to complete his articles. After later discussing the matter with other partners at EFK Tucker, Tucker offered Cyril the opportunity to complete his articles at this prestigious firm. The arrangement was slightly problematic. EFK Tucker was the Urban Foundation's lawyer, meaning Cyril was both an article clerk at the firm and a board member of one of its biggest clients. This law firm was a very different species from Dolovitz and offered more substantial intellectual challenges. Tucker, meanwhile, set out a route for Cyril to qualify. He could continue with articles, complete a diploma with UNISA, and finally take an exam that would allow him to practice as an attorney. The move from Henry Dolowitz's seedy offices to the plush world of EFK Tucker did not, however, dramatically improve Cyril's progress with his studies. He failed the exam that he had to pass in order to practice, a common enough event for the first or second attempt, and he never went back to retake the exam. At no stage did Ramaphosa give any indication of wanting to join this world by becoming a corporate lawyer. Indeed, he became increasingly disdainful of the law, arguing that it had impacted largely negatively on black South Africans. There was no reason, he would tell Tucker, why his people should place trust in lawyers. He was later to describe the law as one of those professions that tend to promote bourgeois tendencies. Although Ramaphosa never seemed comfortable in these institutions, the Urban Foundation and EFK Tucker provided Ramaphosa with experience that he would not easily have acquired elsewhere. At the Urban Foundation, he developed a sophisticated understanding of project, financial and strategic management, as well as a grasp of the depth and character of the country's developmental challenges. The relationship between regional and national boards and the use of externally commissioned expertise were both to find echoes in the organization of the National Union of Mine Workers in the 1980s. At Tucker, he experienced the power of the law in business and developed a sense of the protection that the rule of law might conceivably provide to organized workers. In what was a dynamic and fast-changing environment for industrial relations and labor law, Cyril saw not just a legal minefield, but also a world of opportunities 
for those who knew how to seize them. At the same time, in both institutions, Cyril further expanded his now exceptionally wide range of contacts and relationships in business and politics, and developed a wider sense of the range and nature of opinion within South Africa's white elites. Involvement with the Urban Foundation was later to become controversial, and some leftist intellectuals were hostile to the Urban Foundation from the start. Barney Pijana recalls criticizing the Urban Foundation for tinkering with reform and helping the Boers to find handles from among us, incurring the wrath of Ntata Motlana in the process. Even the Foundation's own 1979 research demonstrated that it was widely despised by young black activists and believed to be promoting influx control. Youth at Dipkloof Community Centre concluded that the Foundation's black staff needed to explain themselves. Ramaphosa did not fear criticism and the fact that the Urban Foundation was not fashionable would hardly have registered with him. But there were also differences of substance. What distinguished Cyril from his peers was that he was not a naive anti-capitalist. Frank Shikani describes anti-Urban Foundation sentiment as part of a wider hostility towards capitalism in post-1976 Soweto. Even the corner shop was viewed as exploitative and so was viewed as a target. Yet Ramaphosa had grown up with a more constructive conception of business. His father's businesses, Atorama Construction, and his relentless vacation work taught him to value entrepreneurial activity. Moreover, the Menels gave Ramaphosa a panoramic overview of the tensions between business and state. He knew that the economic liberals of Anglo-American saw the National Party as an interventionist dinosaur. In retrospect, it is easy to see that the Urban Foundation could never have brought about radical policy change. It was too conservative to threaten economic stability. Yet its underlying philosophy was too much at variance with the governments for the two to engage. As Saki Makazoma later reflected, it was always under fire from two sides. The government was unwilling to cooperate even where they shared objectives. And the liberation movement felt that enfranchisement tended to be ignored by the foundation in favor of improving socio-economic conditions. The skeptical even argued that this was deliberately done to quench the anger on which the struggle fed and to perpetuate the status quo. In the end, the struggle not to be co-opted by financial institutions or by capital was almost farcical. It is something that only SACP activists with large houses and substantial bank balances, Anglican clerics and trade union officials with elastic expense accounts have ever been able to sustain. Middle-class black professionals could not avoid the inherently compromising association with Bantustan state and business institutions. As Frank Shikani explains, the apartheid state and capital were inescapable. One of his projects, the Kachiso Self-Help Scheme, brought relief to the poor. However, it simply could not have functioned without a donation of machines from South African breweries and money from Anglo-American. Should these gifts have been rejected? When Soweto leaders wanting to erect a community meeting hall decided to reject the Urban Foundation as a funder, they approached Anglo-American instead. Yet Anglo told them that the foundation was mostly sponsored by them anyhow. So they had better approach it after all. The community leaders had to satisfy themselves with a ludicrous compromise. The Urban Foundation supplied a tent, but removed the Urban Foundation logo from it. The purity of exile disengagement was simply impossible for inziles. Shikani observes that domestic activists knew all about this problem of inescapable compromise from their black consciousness days. Black consciousness could not have been about black self-isolation from whites, he observes. At black consciousness conference, whites would drop the participants off in their cars, and they would often be paying their salaries too. Steve Biko had a lot of white friends, 
There was no possibility of a clear cut or a tight separation between black and white. What mattered about black consciousness was that black people took the decisions and that white people did not control their thinking. Did white people control Cyril Maposa's thinking? Fred Baswana was a fellow member of the Transvaal Board of the Urban Foundation. He was obliged to serve on the board by his employer, British Petroleum, very much against his wishes. He does not think that Cyril could have had any illusions about the nature of the foundation. At the beginning, the Urban Foundation held some superficial promise, he observes. Clive Menel and Jan Steyn were perfectly nice men, but they were just quite different to black people. At that time, white people were quite unable to deal with race relations on anything like a basis of equality. White people were unable to understand or relate to the concerns of black people. In fact, they still are. Poswana quickly realized that the foundation had nothing to say to the real problem facing the country. White people sitting on such a board at that time were unable to visualize a time when whites were no longer running South Africa. This was a future they were simply unable to see. How could Ramaphosa possibly have missed a fact as obvious to any black man as this? Cyril's white acquaintances were also left in no doubt about his position. His second legal employer, Bob Tucker, observes that Ramaphosa always spoke with his own constituency in mind, and for this reason, his move into the black trade union movement was very much a natural one. Cyril never had any ambition to move into corporate law. It was always very clear that he was going to take the skills he'd acquired and use them to best effect to advance the interests of the black community. Even Ramaphosa's relationship with the Menels was circumscribed by wider forces than mere friendship could overcome. The Menels mining house, Anglaval, was to remain an implacable opponent of the interests of black mine workers in the 1980s. When Cyril visited the company's offices on Main Street in the early 1980s, the doorman told him that blacks had to enter through a door at the rear of the building. As a thinker, Ramaphosa was a visionary pragmatist who would relentlessly seek incremental reform today, but never at the cost of entrenching an unjust social order tomorrow. Fred Paswana observes that his position was incompatible with the philosophy of the Urban Foundation. Jan Steyn and Menel believed that the system was wrong, but having said that, they believed if you allow the system to be destroyed, then you would in effect destroy the country. Their first goal was therefore to preserve the system. The system has to be sustained and amended before one could even consider handing it over. But there were limits to Ramaphosa's willingness to compromise. It is worth recalling Cyril's unguarded comment to his previous employer, the small-time lawyer Henry Dolovitz. We won't live with this chain around our necks. I don't care if we have to wipe things out and start from the beginning, and it takes a hundred years. We'll do it. <laughs>